Hey guys, this is Emmett. <laughs> Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today I am here with John. What's up, John? Hey, how's it going? Bad, as we were talking <laughs> earlier. We're both. Yeah. That's the good thing about doing a podcast about why nothing feels possible is no one expects you to be in a good mood like, when you're going to do it. Um, it's the opposite of the way when you're like working at a service job, you're like smiling and being nice all day and then you just go home and cry. <laughs> Here we cry at work. <laughs> so that we can go home and be happy. Yeah. Or at least it's not like YouTube where you almost have to be brutally happy almost every time you go to make a video or something like that. Yeah. The one that I love is Brad Trammell, who starts every video with, good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And his like pathological, like gun to his head. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> the, that's a King Tremel, man. It doesn't get better than him. So today we are introducing a new series. And I want to talk a little bit about the direction of the podcast as we're approaching next month will be our, our one year anniversary. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at three or four books that really speak to our theme. Now we're going to do the first episode for all of those books as we do them publicly. We will do the rest behind the paywall on the Patreon. We're going to read them in a way where you can read along if you'd like. It means that half of the Patreon content every month will be us working through the book, unless something comes up and that's not the way it works. But we're going to go through these things slowly enough to do that. The three books that we're going to look at are The Death of the Subject Explained by James Hartfield, All That a Solid Melts Into Air by Marshall Berman. There's maybe a third one on conceptions of history that I think is really important. We need to investigate it more. So that's perhaps on there. And then the one that we're launching today, which is The True and Only Heaven, Progress and Its Critics by none other than Christopher Lash. Yeah. So. This, it's, I've read, I'll admit, 25% of it before, before I like tapped out because that's how reading goes usually for me when the book is sufficiently long mm -hmm. and I don't have any structure around me. But I think it'll be pretty exciting in some ways, I got the sense, having not even coming close to finishing it, that it might have been like maybe his magnum opus, just in terms of like scholarship, depth, and maybe lasting value. And breath, honestly. It's yeah, like that, yeah. Not that we didn't enjoy everything we've read of his before, but I think he would probably agree with us because this was written late and benefited a lot from a view that he was able to take of his own life, which is what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. The reason why we chose that we're opening with this because we love Christopher Lash, but the reason why we picked these three books, just to give you an overview. So Lash is going to take a look at the Atlantic Republican tradition. This really does feel like the culmination of his work. And he's going to take a look at what the concept of progress has meant and who has resisted it and how and what the values of those ideological camps are. 
that is an oversimplification of what he's up to. It obviously gets much richer and deeper than that. But we thought that would be a compelling way to explore why nothing feels possible because it would ask us to critically evaluate the idea of progress in general and whether or not nothing feels possible because we have an expectation of whatever progress is supposed to mean. And we want to problematize that for ourselves and see if we can puzzle that out because we feel we owe it to ourselves and to you, to listeners, to ask more of ourselves at a fundamental level when it comes to investigating just the entire premise of the podcast. Okay, then we're going to look at all that is solid melts into air because I don't feel like we have a sufficient handle on modernity and what it is meant. I think it's a half forgotten class of the genre. It is also the type of broad scholarship, synthetic scholarship that John and I both really admire. So we're going to take a look at that so that we can understand what is new and what isn't, which is also fundamental to our theme. So much of our podcast is about context. And this is something we'll get into when we start discussing the last year in a little bit, but it's hard to tell what is just a rearticulation of an old problem or what is decisively different than what ancestors have faced in the past. So having a book that takes a look at the experience of modernity, that's the subtitle of Berman's book, I think should help us do that. And then the other one, The Death of the Subject Explains, I found out about this one through the uh, Bunga guys. You can find an excerpt of this on Damage magazine. It is, I think, a different appraisal of what we come to call the death of history. And this is about the death of the subject itself, the idea that the subject continues history. This has antecedents, of course, in... 18th and early 19th century idealism and the long tail effects and conceptions that change over time with that. And then the kind of exhaustion that sets in right around the time that Lash is becoming more and more aware of the world and doing his own writing. So that's the sixties and the seventies. Okay. So that's the project. That is the return to our theme that is how we want to more deeply explore it. If you are interested in reading along with us, because we will try to integrate comments and questions, if you do decide to read along with us into the episodes as we go through, you can subscribe to our Patreon. It's seven bucks a month for two exclusive episodes a month. So three fifty dollars a piece for those. The other thing is, and I thought I'll announce this now, just as we're getting rid of housekeeping stuff, we've launched a merch quote unquote store. I basically set up a T public account and <laughs> created merch with our battery guy that I think is like only available in black. So <laughs> you can check that out. I think right now, because it's a new store, it's pretty cheap, which means it's all on sale. So that will be in the link to the show notes. You can check that out. We could probably get away with like selling episodes on cassette like limited release, like we should get in touch with like cassette label about this. That's so <laughs> brutal. Oh my God. Launching a band camp. That's just like, man, that's rough. That is rough. Okay. So we're looking at the true and only heaven. I have to say, I found the opening of this book quite moving. I found it very honest. I think it felt me. Uh, I think it helped me 
situate Lash in time and place in a way that I could only assume for those of us who are here from what's the, what's Donald and Tom's podcast. You can't win. Yeah. Yeah. We were over there and I was really just talking out my ass about Chris La- Christopher Lash's biography. And what I found out is that I got most of it right <laughs> <laughs> by eyeballing it, but he does a wonderful <laughs> self portrait here. So yeah, it opens with the preface where he's asking this question. How does it happen that serious people continue to believe in progress in the face of massive evidence that might have been expected to refute the idea of progress once and for all? Yeah, like World Wars One and Two, arguably perhaps even the Thirty Years' War or uh, the English Civil War or any other horrible forgotten war, the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um or the like late Victorian holocausts of the oh, yeah. 19th century. Mike Davis writes a book with that title, Late Victorian Holocaust for those. Anything the British Empire did anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> ever. Yeah, to ever, anyone. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then we take a look at our empire. We can look at Vietnam, which plays uh, a huge role here. Korea is one day we will eventually get around to talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll probably come up later too, but there's, you know, a lot of many more subtle aspects of things where you can look at what perhaps the main preachers of progress were pointing towards as the telos of this whole thing and how supposedly their heirs are themselves embracing things which really fly in the face of that, which the one thing that really occurred to me was there used to be, which Lash is going to get into, talk of a brotherhood of man sort of thing mm-hmm. and whittling down or a facing of differences among people, how they're not that important or meaningful, like gender isn't that important of a difference and so on. And you can see that there's great similarity amongst human beings. And that would be the bedrock for essentially some kind of future global peace or something mm-hmm. to that effect. And it seems like today people are not really interested in that. Like only a very few old holdouts, I would say. It would be like being a Marxist in the history department today. You'd be like entrenched and alone. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> to continue to hold on to that because of the obvious reasons of like identity politics and stuff are really trying to go in a different direction and sameness Usually it's cast in terms of whiteness now, I would say. And so there are things of that nature that I think are interesting to contemplate. But so Lash also on like page one brings up something that it would be important to look at because it's going to be one of the driving binaries that he's going to talk about. He says that the assumption of our standard of living will undergo a steady improvement colors our view of the past as well as our view of the future. It gives rise to a nostalgic yearning for bygone simplicity, the other side of the ideology of progress. Nostalgia, not to be equated simply with the remembrance of things past, is better understood as an abdication of memory. It makes the past a foreign country, as David Lowenthal puts it. Which I thought maybe... It was profound for me because I think nostalgia is often used as a slur. Anytime you say anything about anything that happened before, it's easy for someone to be like, oh, you're just nostalgic. And that it absolutely is an abdication of memory on the part of anyone who does that. 
because it's you made reference to something that happened before, but before equals bad, thus you equal bad, thus it's like a simple arithmetic. And, and it works on the other way too. People who are like, oh, if only it was back then tend to have a self-forgetting quality of what else came with that. And I think that's part of the problem too, is that he says it obscures the connections between the past and the present. I think on both sides of the nostalgia divide, because you can be ignoring problems that destroyed the thing you're nostalgic for that were within what you miss. In either camp, you're not present. Yeah, exactly. You're either, you're somewhere else and you've hermetically sealed yourself from like the world as it is around you in an important way. And he's going to argue that you can be authentically attached to the past in a way that informs your present life and the things that you do in it, which obviously would appeal to us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So he goes on to talk about how there was at every turn a fight against the quote unquote progress of liberalism. And that we can find that in thinkers like Carlisle, Emerson, Thomas James, George Sorrell, and a few others. And he's pointing to what I think he ends up calling the Atlantic Republican tradition that has its own values. And he qualifies those values thusly. It is most simply described perhaps as the sensibility of the petty bourgeoisie, difficult to recognize as such in major thinkers only because we expect major thinkers to participate in the general revulsion against the petty bourgeois way of life. These particular thinkers, I believe, embodied the conscience of the lower middle class, giving voice to its distinctive concerns and criticizing its characteristic vices of envy, resentment, and servility. Notwithstanding those vices, the moral conservatism of the petty bourgeoisie, its egalitarianism, its respect for workmanship, its understanding of the value of loyalty, and its struggle against the moral temptation of resentment are the materials on which critics of progress have always had to rely if they wanted to put together a coherent challenge to the reigning orthodoxy. Which sounds a lot to me like when we made brief mention of the fact that some Straussians really want to find a non-liberal origin point of some of America's founding thoughts. Yeah, the West Coast Straussian perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And we might also rebut that perhaps the petty bourgeoisie culture, the thing that he's talking about here, the sensibility the term Mm. he uses – isn't the only vantage from which we can attack the reigning orthodoxy for, or I should say against the idea of progress, but that McIntyre seems to offer a sufficiently alternative vision of that. But as we move through, we're going to find a lot of resonances between these two perspectives as well. There's another section here where he says, it's my contention, however, that the concept of virtue, or sorry, let me move one back. My discussion of 19th century populism or proprietary democracy broadly understood as a body of social thought that condemned the boundless appetite for more and better goods and distrusted improvements if they only gave rise to a more and more elaborate division of labor builds on the work of J.G.A. Pocock, Gordon Wood, and other historians of the Republican tradition. 
It is my contention, however, that the concept of virtue, which played such an important part in the 19th century critique of improvement, did not derive from Republican sources alone. Recent scholarship, much of it inspired by the hope of reviving a sense of civic obligation and of countering the acquisitive individualism fostered by liberalism, has overlooked the more vigorous concept of virtue that was articulated in certain varieties of radical Protestantism. For a Puritan like John Milton, virtue referred not to the disinterested service of the public good, but to the courage, vitality, and life-giving force emanating in the last analysis from the creator of the universe. That was interesting because it reminded me of like for a brief time, I think CompBot and Logo were like posting little memes of New England, like Mm -hmm. colonial era dude wearing his little hat. And he's like, society, what is that? No, I'm like an active member of my local community. I like am on the board of the church and I would, and they were getting into this whole kind of millenarian communitarian sort of New England thing that was going on before we were United States mm-hmm. and how that there is all these antecedents of it and what was going on in England with Francis Bacon and this idea of a new Atlantis and these kind of like all this stuff was bubbling up and ending up in America by way of the fact that the colonists um, coming over were coming out of this milieu of the radical Protestantism that did have something of a political component, which was incorporating their vision of the coming millennium or whatever and the end of everything perhaps into a kind of new radical vision of community and so the mention of john milton i don't know i thought that was interesting because i would agree with them that perhaps that is an interesting avenue to explore Mm -hmm. even if i'll maintain ultimate reservations about protestantism (laughs) <laughs> as a source of truth my man <laughs> <laughs> i will nonetheless try to be fair yes that's exactly how i felt <laughs> um, so we'll see and we'll probably learn a lot yeah all right so that's the preface right what happens next is i think a very interesting move for lash i really did not expect it and i appreciated it greatly The introduction, which comes next, is subtitled The Obsolescence of Left and Right. And that's pretty self-explanatory. I think he does a good job of characterizing the broad overlap between sort of the right-wing Reagan business class and the progressive libertarian left. I live in California. It is nothing but a hellscape of that. As Kurt Anderson, and I've said this a million times on the show, said, you really realize that Reagan is a culmination of the 60s because do your own thing is not so different from every man for himself. And that's exactly the same conclusion that Christopher Lash comes to here. That what we call left and right, again, what we call left and right in this country, not in some like ideal sense of left and right, but what we call left and right does not seem to fit the bill anymore. And it's something that we've talked about a lot, which is essentially whatever passes for right in this country is essentially like you often say, the interests of the chamber of commerce, which pays lip service 
to some like hodgepodge of traditional kind of sounding things like family or Christianity or something mm-hmm. to placate a voting base or really to build a voting base identity, mm-hmm. which can then vote for them based on that identity, which never need have any connection to anything real that they mm-hmm. do or act on whatsoever. Finding themselves in opposition with which I would say is pretty clearly often the winning side and this more often than not, which would be like the real left in America, which is like the reigning liberal elite. And that's something that I talk about in my latest thing for American conservative. You can check that in the show notes too, where I talk about how the way that the business class used to pay lip service to traditional values, it is now doing the same with progressive values. Yeah. Yeah. That's something undergoing an interesting shift, but will probably in some ways be more of the same just with new clothes. We'll see. But yeah, that's a pretty good characterization. And I think we're all fairly familiar with the basic idea of it. And then he, the next little subheading is limits the forbidden topic. (laughs) Yeah, uh, exactly. And so we'll get into that. This is the moment where you really realize that Lash is a product of the seventies energy crisis. Yeah. Which, okay. So I was talking to John before we started recording. The energy crisis is, when we take a look at the 60s and 70s, the main thing we look at is Vietnam. I want to argue that the energy crisis in the 70s is as important as Vietnam for understanding our landscape. So Lash is basically, look, left and right are basically hooked on this idea of progress and economic growth. He says, but the fact remains, the earth's finite resources will not support an indefinite expansion of industrial civilization. So this is an idea that really gets trotted out and seems to have a lot of weight in the 70s when we're undergoing squeezes from OPEC, when the environmental movement is oftentimes rightly pointing out what the environmental cost of industrial production is. And a great skepticism sets in of our ability to provide a more abundant future for posterity. If we think back to the subtitle of Lash's Culture of Narcissism, which is American life in the age of diminishing expectations. This is written a few years after the energy crisis. He's really speaking to that. More so even than perhaps the 60s, though he has plenty of salt for the new left, we'll see as we move (laughs) through. And ultimately, and I have some obvious disagreements with this, Lash reveals himself to be a pro-renewables degrowth guy. I think he has more sophisticated things to say that are frankly less eugenicist than somebody like Paul Ehrlich or Amory Lovins who also helped design the Energivinda, which is going so well in Germany that they're now reliant on Russian gas and so on (laughs) and so forth. So we'll get into what he means by turning away from an idea of opulence and progress towards something else and alternative values that are also not, I would say, like Khmer Rouge back to the lander. I'll say that this is a debate that's pretty well defined by people I don't agree with on every single side. Yep. And it's often difficult to then talk about anything because 
things really have ossified into two groups of people using their own batches of essentially conventional wisdom against one another and can be equally annoying to perhaps the outside. You have the Pollyanna growth people who are like, everything's fine. We can have everything that we want. A lot of times this will show up in like the like hardcore libertarian camp or the like fully automated luxury communism people on the left. I have disagreements with my friend, Lee Phillips, Mm. on how much growth is possible, but I am not a degrowther and I am not a pessimist about our ability to do that. I think we can use technology to decouple. At the same time, I share Lash's horror at the cheap pornographication of everyday life that seems to have come out of much of our consumer culture. And I think that is really his primary interest. I don't think he cares enough or frankly knows enough about energy politics to make any sort of real sophisticated critique there. He is operating on his own conventional wisdom, but I think his more cultural arguments, which are also, I should point out, not interested in treating mass culture as if it is the opiate of the masses. So he's not like trying to shame people for consuming things. I think he has a much more sophisticated bent on that and has much to teach us. Yeah. I'll say for my own part that I always felt, and I feel like McIntyre did a good job of actually explicating one of the things that often ignored in these debates, which is when we talk about like growth or degrowth or this or that, people don't often mention Fortuna mm-hmm. or the aspect of the fact that all of this is being done by people who are governing in some mm-hmm. respect. And we're often subject not only to limitations of resource, but also limitations of wisdom. (laughs) And so I won't take ghosts too far in a digression, but Christopher Wickham is like one of the major historians of the early Middle Ages. And he had written a good book about, which treats a little bit the late Roman Empire. And he argues that the Roman Empire of the 400s AD is in no way obviously unstable like the Western half, like nothing about it would give anyone any clue that it was about to come crashing into the ground. And that kind of moving from that a little bit revisionist history, but in the face of a lot of prior conventional wisdom about how the empire was obviously doomed to fail by these structural flaws, he points to quite a collection of just like very individually horrible choices made by various people in charge, Mm -hmm. which catastrophically created events that it could then not escape, but that it was by no means in and of itself doomed to fall apart immediately at that time. And I would just say that this is often like a factor which seems to be treated as given most of the time when people talk about this online Mm -hmm. on both camps or the Khmer Rouge people are often like, yeah, it's a foregone conclusion that I have political power and can carry out whatever mm-hmm. program I have devised to make us into farmers. And on the opposite side, it can be the same as well, where I have all of the scientific bodies of knowledge that we need. There's all the right ways to do things so that it's clean, it's efficient, and it never stops growing. And both sides usually ignore the fact that neither of them decides as we love to always talk about who decides, neither yeah. of you. Kui Yudicat. Yeah. Exactly. Who and decides? so 
I think that uh, I'll say all this to say that there's a lot of room within all this to have a pretty fruitful discussion that's Absolutely. not limited to ideas that are over easily uh, reduced to some kind of handful of catchphrases or things. And We'd I think like that to we'll be getting some of this. Yes. Yes. I think we'll be getting, we'll be able to get into some of that as we go through this book, I think. And I think that'll be really salutary. Yeah. For me. And I hope for our listeners as well. So look, he, I'm just going to read this part because I think one of the things we talked about at the very beginning of this is how much of this is new and how much of this is just an iteration of something that's already happened. So he's talking about, this is what he follows up with after he's just like, will we be able to, he does like the human carrying capacity argument for the earth, which honestly has been in many ways, I don't want to say debunked, but it has been problematized to the point where it is hard to put limits on that. So as a limits to growth argument, I don't think it's sufficient. However, what he says after that, I think is very compelling and speaks to our time. He says, these considerations about human carrying capacity for the earth refute conventional optimism, though the real despair lies in a refusal to confront them at all. (laughs) And both the right and left, therefore, prefer to talk about something else. For example, to exchange accusations of fascism and socialism. But the ritual deployment and rhetorical inflation of these familiar slogans provide further evidence of the emptiness of recent political debate. For the left, fascism now embraces everything to the right of liberalism and social democracy, including such disparate configurations as the Ayatollah Khomeini's Iran, the opposition to the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua, and Reaganism itself. For the right, communism, or creeping socialism, as it used to be called, embraces everything to the left of and including the New Deal. Not only have these terms lost their meaning through reckless expansion, but they no longer describe historical alternatives at the end of the 20th century. And a little bit further down, he says, basically, that it doesn't really seem like anybody's about to inherit history left or right, that something else is in the running and we don't know what it is. He says, none of this means that the future will be safe for democracy, only that the danger to democracy comes less from totalitarian or collectivist movements abroad than from the erosion of its psychological, cultural, and spiritual foundations from within. Well, what do we have here? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And I was like, yes, brother. So now he does a really great pivot where this is the surprising part I was talking about. He gives us the making of a malcontent. This is something of an intellectual self-portrait of his transition from New Deal liberal to guy who doesn't fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved in the early parts, he talks about youth. And I loved the part where he mentions that I shared my parents' regret that Franklin Roosevelt's overtures to the Russians had been abandoned by his successors, unwisely and prematurely abandoned as it seemed to us. Harry Truman was no hero in my parents' circle. (laughs) there's a great documentary as is hearsay i haven't seen it but apparently off screen it's like about truman and the japanese and the bomb and everything and truman is like talking or something for part of it and off screen he talks to the director and he's don't make me seem fucking easy on the japanese i wasn't easy on the japanese like 
dude (laughs) 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 like what (laughs) yeah Yeah. Uh, forgotten bits of perhaps a more real experience of these times than the i would say nostalgia we often get that's something he brings up he talks about how weird it is as someone so he was born in the depression he talks about as, and as someone who grows up during the 50s, he says it's insane to him that there are like these times of innocence that people remember because he's watching all the Dean Atchison shit, the Korean War, how America has, instead of getting rid of its army, decided to keep it and really inherit empire and the total repressive culture of McCarthyism. Yeah. Now, I think he really agrees with Bruce Cummings about the effect of McCarthyism and that whole mode on our foreign engagements abroad and christopher lash is like horrified by what's happening to american culture he sees it developing into a control society built around an elite managed empire he also does not like the time which i respect oh yeah i love that i love that (laughs) yeah not interested in them at all i was like yes thank you it's it was cool to see that some people at the time were obviously completely aware of what was going on and there was no kind of veil at that time even for them mm-hmm. even though we have re-experienced their time secondhand as if it were that he gets into the stuff that Chomsky was quite famous for talking about back in the day which is how every elite academic institution is a part of our foreign policy machine mm-hmm. provides technology and intellectual assistance to a global empire with absolutely no like moral qualms whatsoever about their role in this and how at the time people were actually somewhat troubled and naively thought that perhaps part of the academy was still committed to the idea of the community of scholars and thus that pressure from this community could exert some sort of influence against that direction, which they then was not going to happen. Yeah, indeed false. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he talks about then what Vietnam does for him. He's very skeptical of the best and the brightest. He's skeptical of Kennedy. He went to Harvard. And so he was like, why the fuck would I trust any of my classmates with something like <laughs> Vietnam? Because that's not, that's a stupid idea. And then I think this is where he has some real smoke for the new left. And we love beating up on them, I know, but and maybe that's a little bit old. But I think that this is worth emphasizing. And I want to tell a little story here. People on here know that I grew up around Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers and other people from the Weather Underground. Chesa Boudin, who is the DA of San Francisco and the son of some of those people, babysat me when I was a kid. So I had real intimacy with who these people are. And I'm going to touch on that in a second. But he says, it soon became clear, however, that the student movement took a different view of the university, one that indiscriminately condemned all institutions and equated liberation with anarchic personal freedom. As the new left degenerated into revolutionary histrionics, its spokesmen, clownish media freaks like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, seekers of existential authenticity like Tom Hayden, connoisseurs of confrontation like Mark Rudd, obviously found it more and more difficult to distinguish between power and authority. My own reading and experience had convinced me that American society suffered from the collapse of legitimate authority and that those who ran our institutions to the 
to the degree to which they had lost public confidence, had to rely on bribery, manipulation, intimidation, and secret surveillance. And then it goes on. There's a larger cynical decay of any type of authority later on in that paragraph. I've met Mark Rudd. He lives in Albuquerque. I watched him give a talk on Trump when I was working at a bookstore in Santa Fe, full of all the ex-New Left boomers wearing turquoise, you can imagine. Eventually, it became clear that he was like an op. You know, he was a rat to the FBI when things got too radical for him. His sense of self-congratulatory moral superiority is unbelievable to this day. And I just want to say this, our memory of the 50s being a time of naive innocence, getting along, America's experiencing the post-war boom is about as accurate as the honor, seriousness, and political possibility of much of the 60s left. Those things are equal fantasies that we tell ourselves about post-war America. And I think that they work in tandem with each other. Mm-hmm. That seems eminently reasonable to me. Also, in the, in the fucking documentary about the Weather Underground, which Fugazi did the music for, by the way, <laughs> they did. Mark Rudd is the only one of those fucking cons that says, I was just mentally destroyed thinking about the bombing of innocent children everywhere. It made me crazy. It like allowed me to do all of these things. That is the most disingenuous shit I have ever heard in my fucking life. Anyone who understands the basic workings of the human heart understands that could not make you crazy. It could disgust you. You could not like it. It could inspire you to protest. But the fact that he was the only one and he was also a rat that said that it was his excuse for doing whatever the fuck he wanted, that it was licensed until it got too hot for him. Shows you how fucking bankrupt these people were. I'm going to end this rant now. Don't worry. If you ever happen to mention people who say that the Old Testament isn't that old, I would feel just as mad and start ranting. (laughs) 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 You could hear a five-hour diatribe about the epistemic arrogance of every single member of the archaeological community. So we all have our strange moods. And for what it's worth, you sound correct. I just admittedly haven't looked into it as much and have no personal connection to it, like pretty much whatsoever. But I think that it's probably becoming exhaust canon by this point that essentially we agree with Lash and many of his characterizations that a lot of what they were doing, likely unbeknownst to all of them, was as or more psychological than anything like mm-hmm. really that was the thing at times it was about the rush it was about yeah. feeling something and doing something and those were tied together and i think that what you're talking about is that playing out in a really disgusting but probably in hindsight like understandable way of they didn't have any connection to anything 
that had happened before them. They were just iterating and doing stuff based on how they felt. And this is, I guess, what's possible when that's what you're up to, which probably should be fair warning to all of us. Right. (laughs) Because I can relate. (laughs) Yeah. So Chase and Boudin's parents were in prison (coughs) because they tried to knock up, they tried to like rob someone at gunpoint and, and there was like a Coke deal gone bad. And they were with one of their black comrades. And when the cops came, Shaza's mother was like, it wasn't me, it was him, and pointed at the black guy. Shaza Boudin loves to trot out how his parents are victims of the criminal justice system. Real oligarchy of sob story shit. While he refuses to prosecute basic crimes in fucking San Francisco. Just disgusting. It is the collapse of authority that Lash is talking about. So let's move on. He also, the next section is basically him saying, but that doesn't mean that I didn't like the left as a tradition and talking Mm -hmm. about how he belatedly, but seemingly pretty seriously read Marx and Engels and then moved on to Gramsci and Lukács and Raymond Williams, E.P. Thompson. Yeah. Uh, Pretty much going through a lot of what you might call a Marxist canon, more or less. He did the Frankfurt School, found things to like about it all, and found what probably many people who have done a similar sort of journey have found, which is a connection to like something that seemingly has some relationship to like real stuff. And (laughs) like anything before the present, like past few days. Yeah. Yeah. And also comes to the same conclusion a lot of people have recently, which is that Marxism against the left. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, I think he ends up in a place that probably a lot of people did because there's a kind of, there are people who, who get interested in Marxism and they read maybe a lot of it. And then they decide to become card carrying members of a completely non-influential, we might say, group of like dedicated Marxist theorists somewhere in the United States who might do pamphleting or like book publishing. And like they're still holding out for that third world is wave that'll come any day or whatever. But I think there's also a section of the people who get seriously like nerdy into Marx and everything else that don't find that really compelling and are interested in Marx as an intellectual current and everything that comes out of him and from him and all these other sort like Freud, et cetera, and all this stuff that's useful for trying to think about things, but it's not your ticket into membership into some kind of small political group, which will then be your extremely dysfunctional social context and like not yeah. much else. And it's probably the alternative that was more interesting to me. I think I read somewhere, I like maybe it was Foucault who was saying that like Marxism was shattered, but like now these fragments are like still important to us. And somehow that's what being Marxian is. And mm-hmm. I've often thought that like, there's really no way that like a lot of the stuff that I say and do isn't born out of that basic kind of way of thinking about things. Without my knowledge, often I will be deploying things that originally come out of Marx in that tradition. And I think that it obviously appeals to us as a way of having moved intellectually. Totally. So somebody sent in a question, which we'll get to on the Q and A in more depth about our relationship to Marx. And I think John and I both have some pretty serious debts to Marx and Marxist thinkers. So what Lash is doing here is he's painting a picture of, again, how it became that he's a guy that doesn't fit in anywhere. 
right? The making of a malcontent is what he calls it. And he talks about how everything becomes commodified and cheap. But I think he says, this is what I was talking about. He doesn't want to talk about these things as if they're the opiate of the masses or whatever. The sort of, I think, um, chintzy critique of ideology that a lot of like Monty Python dads have is is how (laughs) I describe it. So he says, the critics of mass culture, as I read them, were not primarily concerned with the debasement of popular taste, nor were they arguing that mass culture served as the opiate of the people, a source of the false consciousness that lulled the masses into acceptance of their miserable condition. They were on the track of something more ominous, the transformation of fame into celebrity, the replacement of events by images and pseudo events, the replacement of authoritative moral judgment by inside dopesterism, which appealed to the fear of being left behind by changing fashions, the need to know what insiders were saying, the hunger for the latest scandal or the latest medical breakthrough or the latest public opinion polls and market surveys. Further down, all that mattered was the particular version of unreality the public could be induced to quote unquote buy. Buying did not necessarily imply belief. If disinformation, as it came later to be called, proved eminently marketable, it was because information itself was in pitifully short supply. Disinformation monopolized the airwaves. It was not that Americans had become stupid or credulous, but that they had no institutional alternative to the consumption of lies. Their only available defense was to turn off the television set, cancel subscriptions to newspapers and periodicals, and stay away from the polls on election today. Uh, Let's go to the end. I love it. He says, more and more people, in fact, availed themselves of these options to judge by declining newspaper sales, lower and lower ratings for political events, and the shrinkage of the electorate. But public opinion polls now made it possible, in effect, to dispense with the electorate by allowing an infinitesimal but allegedly representative sample of the population to determine the outcome of elections in advance. This is the same point forwarded by Joan Didion in 88 at the beginning of her insider baseball thing. That like politics at some point just becomes totally disconnected from the type of people she grew up with, which were the type of people who hung out in gas stations in high school. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, there's been talk more lately of the way and our changing conception of what neoliberalism means is a thing now academically and otherwise more recent books about it and placing its genesis much earlier and much more directly with traditionally left figures like Walter Lippmann mm-hmm. is all tied into this stuff, polling, population control, opinion control manufacturing consent if you want all of this kind of thing and the fact that it feels so relevant (laughs) yeah yeah like anyone who is at all interested maybe in what was going to happen in the last presidential election we had anyone with a slight hope that maybe some kind of like small compromise in favor of maybe something that some regular person might want was possible like they got a good lesson all of this stuff And the fact that whether or not it's true, I don't know. But I often feel as if the only way to win is to not play. Yeah, exactly. It's the exit or uh, voice thing. Yeah. And right now it's insanely hard to have a voice in any of the institutions that govern you. You see this a lot with the Claremont guys on the right. They're talking a lot about, I 
they might be more inclined to do this than liberals are, but move to a red state if you're in a blue one and lock down control of your community and that red state because it's the only safe place for you. I think COVID has made that more stark Mm, because Republican governors are so resistant to mask mandates and stuff like that. And America isn't Australia. We're just not going to be like, yeah, this is fine. There are going to be, there's going to be a large sector of the population that will, if they had to pick potentially dying in exchange for freedom of movement. It ties for me, a lot of this stuff reminded me so much of one of the last points we talked about in After Virtue, which was whether or not living in a like modern liberal country is existing in a state of eternal civil war. I mm-hmm. uh, like anytime you go on Reddit and look at anything about coronavirus now, you will probably without fail see some like supposedly progressive person or whatever who like has some kind of commitment to certain values, allegedly again, um, gloating that if you were stupid enough to not get vaccinated, then they think that you probably just should die and get it out of the way so that the people who are smart can get back to their normal lives where they can have fun. I saw a guy go on a rant where he was like, I got my freedom jab. (laughs) I shouldn't have you like, the way that it was said was almost like identical to what you might hear from the other side, especially employing the term freedom like that. I should be allowed to do whatever I want to do because I got stuck by the science pointy stick and now things should be fine. But these idiots, to an extent, I can like probably understand and appreciate some much more toned down version of that where you're like, yeah, it sucks that things aren't normal now. Some people didn't get with the program that I believe in. But it seemingly always goes to the level of just complete indifference to like human suffering and an inability to see anything aside from like your one viewpoint that you will possess. Yeah. No Uh, capacity for empathy and a desire that they just die or leave, which makes me wonder, is it a country? I don't know. What does it yeah, mean? Do you see a lot of that in a lot of different places? You see a lot of insane shit on the right, but I haven't seen that, to be completely honest. I have not seen that. The other thing is, yeah, is this a society or, or what's going <laughs> on here is another question, but this is what Lash is talking about when he moves on to discuss like how he really realizes and internalizes the way in which liberals just wish middle America would get out of the way so that they could have what they want. They don't feel the need to persuade anybody. That's what's so funny about this vaccine shit. It's like Trump was in Alabama lately and had like the best vaccine comms I'd ever, I've seen yet from anybody with authority where he was like, you have to have your freedoms but I suggest you get it. And then he joked, I got it. It was great. If it doesn't work out, you'll be the first to know. (laughs) And I was like, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. I was just like, man, unbelievable. And look, the way that the thing to me that was the most moving when we get, and Lash's thing is when he talks about what having kids does 
And when we're taking a look at these debates like CRT or like masks in schools, and we're like, why can't people just get together? Like, it's because they have kids now. They have a totally different skin in the game than you who lives in a cube in New York with your cat and writes for fucking Vox. It's different once that happens to you. Just, I really resonated with this. It was different once I got married. Like when I was just single, it was, yeah, whatever happens next is whatever happens next. When I got married, I was like, okay, we're building a future together. It matters what we do. Certain things has to have to go right for that to happen. I want to participate in society in the long term. Mm-hmm. Someone's future is bound up with mine now. I am no longer separate. It matters. And then when I read about how he talks about having kids, he says, to see the modern world <clears throat> from the point of view of a parent is to see it in the worst possible light. This perspective unmistakably reveals the unwholesomeness, not to put it more strongly, of our way of life. And he has a like long litany of things that is basically a paragraph and it is totally brutal, but we've read so much of this aloud. I'm not going to, I could almost read just like the last three pages and just to be like, yeah, there's nothing else to say about it really, but we have to, because we're doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a part where he talks. So there is this whole thing amongst him and his generation, which, what did he say? It was like glibly referred to as something. The return to domesticity. Yeah, it's glibly referred to as the return to domesticity, but giving you the like per- perspective of someone who was a part of it, that it was a very not intentional, but nonetheless like commonly felt need for family and not nearly the nuclear family, but like big families and like big groups of people, lots of people across a dinner table every night community in a sense. And the only seem, and this is happening, we'll say in a context in which we've just gone through like institutionally, the country's bankrupt, everyone's cynical. You can't trust to rely on any of that to do anything for you because it's not there for that. That's obvious to you now. So what's left, what can you try and cling to? And that's an attempt to create some kind of like warm protective place amongst family and friends. And he even admits that they placed often perhaps too much of a burden on one another in this regard, but what else can you do in that situation in attempting to try and find something like stable, normal with a possibility for continuance for the rest of your life. And after there's not that much on the table and that's where they were. And he had a really, there was a beautiful part where he talks about how he says, at least we didn't set out to raise a generation of perfect children, however, as many middle-aged parents are trying to do today. And he says that their only unambiguous and unequivocal success was not preparing their children to be successful in the world today. And why is that? Because it requires you to basically be a morally bankrupt person mm-hmm. um, to get anywhere consistently in terms of worldly success in our society today. And that there's no accounting for like finding a craft and dedicating it yourself to it, which is something that McIntyre obviously talks a lot about in the context of virtue mm-hmm. or finding a calling and bearing with it, despite many difficulties and trials that will undoubtedly lie ahead for you in attempting to pursue that often. And the reason for all this is maybe you find something that you feel like you should do, but you can't do it alone. You have to be a part of some greater organization, usually. 
mm-hmm. in order to make anything happen because we live in a society, you know, whatever. But so you go and you find that these people are all essentially like disgusting careerists who don't care at all about what you're trying to do. And you have to fit in with them, be somebody that they like enough so that you can get on in life and whatever the case may be, get promoted. And I think probably a lot of us here talking and listening to this have had that experience in some respect or another and have had to figure out how to make that compromise with the world. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have to get paid and live. And you've realized at some point that like you had something you wanted to do as a kid and you thought that you could just do that and contribute meaningfully to the world. At some point, you realize the inherent massive difficulty that would be involved in attempting to do that and had to figure that out for yourself. And I think that is something that he's reflecting on here. And yeah, for me, it was very moving. I think the degradation of work, which isn't just the typical like, what would you do after the communist revolution? It's like be an artist. It's like, okay, someone needs to pick up the fucking garbage. So maybe do that. It's more, there is less dignity in the trades. We value work less. And I think that's just manifestly true. I think that is also part of the hegemonic liberal condescension and contempt for working people. And I also think that the transition to a service economy has been a fucking disaster for working class life, not just in terms of how little it pays, how frankly humiliating it can be and meaningless, but also in terms of the fact that it does not really imbue you with any skills other than rule following and servility. Anybody who's worked one of those jobs, you and I have talked about it before. We had that whole thing on like shitty jobs programs or something like that. (laughs) I recounted our experiences of working dead end jobs at like Ross or in my case, Hot Topic. And those aren't jobs where you like build the life. Now work is in everything. And I don't think Lash would say that it is, but to deny, and this is true on the left too, that it is important for dignity and an important part of who you are. And that, frankly, not everybody can just be like a yeoman entrepreneur, nor should everybody be that, uh, is to leave out a large part of what makes us human. Just as he also says, like, these humanist ideas, he says, spreads our loyalty to, we do care about a specific nation, a specific community. It is hard, perhaps impossible to care about humanity as such. Schmidt, by way of Proudhon, loves to point out that he who invokes humanity wishes to cheat. Because while there is no greater good you can think of for, to do something on behalf of, except for perhaps God, no one really believes that you can actually do that. Yeah, that was, again we come to another point of contact with McIntyre, which is I read behind that there is probably an equal amount that he could have to say about this idea of human rights and global community and stuff, Mm -hmm. especially since he brought up in the very beginning that he began as a firm committed believer in like the UN and Mm -hmm. things of that nature and arriving at a skepticism of it only after an extreme amount of punishment (laughs) over the years there. Talking about dignity is something that's difficult today, maybe with many people. I've had the easiest time with it, talking to people who aren't from the United States. Mm -hmm. They really get it. 
especially just in my personal experience, people from the Arab Peninsula and like North Africa. Mm-hmm. It's the pretty obvious. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. What we've just talked, we've discussed how on a couple of occasions there's not a really like a recognition of the role of dignity in the life of people these days mm-hmm. and that it's obvious the cost when it's gone. And I, this is just suppositional or whatever, but it's, you can imagine what like growing suicide rates and things like that might have some sort of connection with the fact that your life feels bereft of meaningful possibility in terms of feeling like you're somebody who people can respect because you're a respectable person who contributes something and in turn receives things from others and are bound together in something called a community and like that you matter and that they matter and there's some kind of belonging and togetherness to it all and that you're an important part of that just like they are. There's that kind of basic stuff that maybe we got as a kid if we were lucky Mm -hmm. and then realize is actually very hard to obtain in different circumstances and just what it might mean. And I would imagine that it's easier for people who aren't from here to talk about if only because they're sociologically much closer to it as a common sort of understood value socially in other places. Totally. I think about it this way, like just the idea of the flexible schedule that happens like when you work retail or whatever, just like no regard for you or your life or that you have anyone outside of your job or anything like that. The fact that fucking exists. Yeah. Anybody who's ever done that knows while you're making like $7 an hour before tax. There is something that like really impugns your dignity as a person. There's plenty of worse work in the world, by the way. That's not the worst thing that could happen to you. Nor would I argue. That's not what this is about. Just because the standards could be lower doesn't mean that they should be and that yeah. everyone should accept what they're given. What I'm talking about is a fundamental departure or a fundamental, how do I want to say this? Indifference to the whole of human life. Oh, you have a family? Fuck you, Clopin. Oh, you need to do like this, that, or the other? Too bad if you can't make yourself maximally available for this thankless fucking task job where you just have to bend over for totally deranged customers all the time or whatever. Like you're worth nothing. You don't get to pay rent. Yeah. And I, Lash brings up the fact that so much talk in the political sphere about the family is dripping with condescension. Mm-hmm. Um, like they don't really care. And when mm-hmm. they talk about it, they talk about it in terms of, oh, maybe more federally funded daycare or something. I don't know. Yeah, like that's, that's not- I used to be like that. I used to be like that until it was really like Michael Lind or somebody else that was straight up just like, what about if there was just a family wage? Yeah. And you're like, oh. And what's galling? Is there's the stuff doesn't bother me that much anymore because I've lived with it for so long that I've had to make my peace with the fact that the world is the way that it is Mm -hmm. and that I ignore it to the extent that I can to preserve my like health. But (laughs) the fact that people can be like the family, it's so important, like family values, 
what I grew up with, like just doing the right thing and going to church, mm-hmm. but have no like conception whatsoever of the fact. Have you ever seen a family ripped apart by the fact that they didn't have any money? Yeah. Like that they couldn't make it work anymore because of the stuff they had to do to survive a little bit. And then they just get smashed on the rocks and scattered to the four winds. No one has anyone anymore. Like all too common and extremely economic and extremely related to the conditions in which people have to live and the choices with which they are presented. And this isn't even getting into the realm of proposed solutions. This is just saying, oh, let's recognize that there's a problem and that if you supposedly care about families, then like this is something worth talking about. And it's just like totally crickets over there. And I know that it's like, that's the name of the game. That's the whole point of all of this Mm -hmm. is for them to be like that. But nonetheless, it's brutal. Exactly. Like on the left, you don't normalize having a healthy relationship with your family. Some of us don't. It's okay. Then you're not normal. Live with that. That's reality. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes things are sad. What do you mean? Don't normalize. The fuck are you talking about? And on the right side, it's like, we're only doing normal families here. Like asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> if you're poor, fucking starve to death. <laughs> yeah, it's just like abysmal to contemplate at the end of the day. And yeah, we can have a lot of like harsh words for the right, but all of the like sort of bizarre and intense focus, which absolutely must have come from Tumblr, as we as we like to talk about these days on yeah, the shout like, out to chosen Kat family. D. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Kat D, who's doing the best work on that, by the way. Friend of the show, aka default friend. Everybody should go follow her and read her work on Tumblr. It's important. Yeah, the chosen family stuff, it's me because, mm-hmm. and then shouldn't be taken as to say that I don't believe that you can make like a good amount of friends who can be as close to you as your family and then provide that. In fact, you should, that is basically our relationship in many ways. It's my relationship with a lot of people who have hung in there over the last 10 years or so or longer. You absolutely need that. And if you can get it, it will save your life. We're not saying we're saying that's not what I'm arguing against, but there's a whole thing about how definitely originating out of online culture, where if anyone was ever mean to you or something, the best possible thing you could do is just cut them off forever and then go your own way. And there is a lot of ground in between, like you should remain loyal to your family, no matter what, which some people can like argue for. And I won't say that they're wrong. And there are some people who would say that you should leave at the first provocation. I won't say that they're not wrong, but (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of middle ground between those two positions wherein you might have some feeling of respect for the gravity of that relationship before saying that like you should cast it away. However, a lot of people were basically taken and groomed online by other people into being socialized into what is essentially like this manner of thinking about life, which makes heavy use of therapeutic talk, like nonsense, jargony, like common usage. And it's expectation of life is the complete absence of pain. There is an unendingness to trauma rather than perspective of tragedy. Yeah. 
there are situations in which someone in your family can absolutely betray you and perhaps not even be a human being anymore. Of course. Like no one would argue that never happens. Like the fact that it's just, I'm not saying it is actually the complete opposite of this just shows how far along we've gone down the other perspective. But it's certainly a far cry to have had uncomfortable and hurtful personal interactions with say your father And then from that decide that they deserve never to see you again, or if you have kids, your kids or any like, just live alone and die fucker because you were mean to me once. Exactly. Exactly. Like I'm not going to get into my own family stuff, but I understand what it's like to have things be in some ways permanently broken. And that's really hard, but that doesn't mean that you fucking pathologize the concept of family life itself. And I think that's what we're trying to say with the idea of there's a lot of talk about normalization and normality and whether or not it's good for anything to be normal. And I guess we both just believe that it is. And thus, <laughs> uh, yeah, we yeah. want things to be normal, even when we aren't normal, because there's an obvious value to the fact that it exists and serves as a guidepost in some respects for people. And it's, look, you don't get to be, if you're like, we need to normalize this outsider experience and we do that, then you can't be an outsider anymore. But the way that they want it to work is that we normalize it. And what we really mean is we all accept the uniqueness and exceptional case and value that in and of itself. And it never really becomes normal. The only thing that becomes normal is walking on eggshells around it all the time. Yeah. So this is part of what Lash is looking at when he's looking at the relationship between conservatives and liberals. He's happy to say that there might there is plenty to the argument that sometimes on the right or just within the middle America thing, there can be a dark nativism. There can be chauvinism. There can be racism and all of these other things, but that the liberal arrogance is assuming that there are never any virtues that in fact they themselves lack. That is a part of the other side of the story. And he's interested in that other side of the story because he sees in it that there is some sort of democratic ethos maybe that can be rescued from it. He says this, the conviction that most Americans remained politically incorrigible, ultra-nationalistic in foreign policy, racist in their dealings with blacks and other minorities, authoritarian in their attitudes towards women and children, helps to explain why liberals relied so heavily on the courts and the federal bureaucracy to engineer reforms that might have failed to command popular support if they had been openly debated. The great liberal victories desegregation, affirmative action, legislative reapportionment, legalized abortion, were won largely in the courts, not in Congress. In the state legislatures or at the polls, instead of seeking to create a popular consensus behind these reforms, liberals pursued their objectives by indirect methods, fearing that popular attitudes remain unreconstructed. So I think that's what we're dealing with here. This is against... After all, Lash is a populist, the kind of type of managerial society. Yeah. In essence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A group of besieged, beleaguered, 
coastal urban managers. Yep. Beset by the throngs on all sides. Mm-hmm. More and or less. You, which is interesting because, frankly, the states from which they hail are the most populous, which yeah. they never fail to bring up when the Electoral College doesn't go their way. <laughs> Yeah. I would really like to see another election where the college really swings it for them so that we can get a whole host of articles from the same people who wrote other articles in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. talking about how necessary the college is to the like functioning of the Republic. Just so right, I can yeah, laugh I want at the it headline. To be, I, want, I want it to be narrow. <laughs> Just like yeah. there's that one, I think, Atlantic piece or something like that right after Trump was elected about how there's too much democracy. And I was like, he lost the popular vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. <laughs> I really love that one. So anyway. Yeah, there's, I guess maybe as a nice little closing note, this all kind of reminds me to tie this into maybe a completely different register of a lot of what I've read in Heidegger and then a lot of what Byung-Chul Han is really interested in Heidegger, which is this idea that Freedom is a little bit paradoxical because there's this progressive, you could say, perhaps liberal, at least the Western project of freedom is predicated on this idea that freedom is detachment from bonds. Mm -hmm. And in reality, both of them will argue actually to the contrary, that freedom is impossible without the hold or something which is binding you. And he even does a little bit of goofy philosophy etymology when he talks about how the Indo-European word free originally oh, means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah. Is that Han or Heidegger that does that? Han. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> the Indo-European word free originally meant to like in a sense of friendship and family. And that though our word for freedom and peace grows out of these essential and original bonds to people that we naturally have and how it is only through this that it's possible to arrest time or to bind it into a form of a flow that you can make a home within. And that without this hold, time gets away from you. It flies and you are groundless for you have nothing to hold on to. I love the way that he just writes around these words without yeah, a hold. Yeah. You can't hold on. <laughs> I love, I love that. Like when reading a Han book is just like watching somebody insanely confident, just assert things one sentence at a time. <laughs> Never. Yeah. We couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so that, without ever, ever just being like, and now I'm going to justify this with a lot of evidence. No, which to be fair, it's the same way Heidegger often worked. And I think that maybe they're akin in that way. Just Heidegger was once called a magician. And maybe that's close to the truth. I don't know. But this stuff often reminds me of that stuff. And I think that they're, what I've learned in a lot of the things I've read over the last many years has been that they somehow all circle the same concerns from markedly different viewpoints and ways of getting at them. And that it can at least be interesting to see how they're all sitting in conversation with one another yeah. and how they matter to me because they all seem to directly reflect my personal life experience, which has told me pretty starkly over the last little while that like it is important to have people around and like friends and family. And if they're not there, there's just not much else. And so yeah. in that way, often my reading of philosophy 
or like we'll call it sort of social cultural criticism like Lash or whatever is not animated merely by a desire to be right or like own libs or whatever. But the fact that like my own life is sometimes hard and I would like to understand why. Yeah. At least that, I hope so. And some of those reasons are just going to be strictly personal and have to do with me. And other times it's because there are things outside of me that are going on that are also entirely outside of or at the limits of my ability to control. So we hope that this was an interesting opening to what we think will be a fascinating read. If you want to hear the rest of this series, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon and that link will be in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for joining us, John. It was a pleasure as always and stay safe out there guys. Does that make it subversive?